0: Hello, and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies, and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Anna Ramic. I am head of communications at the European Council on Foreign Relations. And this week, we bring to you a super special Ask Me Anything episode with no other than Mark Leonard himself. For those of you who have listened to this podcast before, he does not need much of an introduction, but for anybody joining us, Mark Leonard is the founder and director of ECFR and author of the newly released and now on sale in the US and UK book called The Age of Unpeace, How Connectivity Causes Conflict. So we thought that connecting the world would bring about lasting peace, but actually it is driving us apart. In the three decades since the end of the Cold War, global leaders have been integrating the world's economy, transport and communications, breaking down borders in the hope of making war impossible. In doing so, they have unwittingly created a formidable arsenal of weapons for new kinds of conflict and the motivation to keep fighting. Rising tensions in global politics are not a bump in the road they are part of the paving. Troublingly, we are now seeing rising conflict at every level, from individuals on social media all the way up to nation states in entrenched standoffs. The past decade has seen a new antagonism between the US and China, an inability to cooperate on global issues such as climate change or pandemic response, and a breakdown in the distinction between war and peace as overseas troops are replaced by sanctions, cyber war and the threat of large migrant flows. As a leading authority on international relations, Mark has been inside many of the rooms where our futures at every level of society are being decided, from the Facebook headquarters and facial recognition labs in China, to meetings in presidential palaces and at remote military installations. In seeking to understand the ways that globalization has broken its fundamental promise to make our world safer and more prosperous, Mark explores how we might rest a more hopeful future from an age of unpeace. To hear more about the book, we actually have a special Sneak peek episode, which we published a few weeks ago, which you can check out before going out and getting the book yourself. Now we would like to thank uh, everybody who has sent in questions over the past few weeks. And unfortunately, we only have time for a handful of those, which Mark will answer today. So, Mark, are you ready?
1: Absolutely. I'm, I'm raring to go.
0: Perfect. So let's begin with this first question, which comes to us from Sweden, from Zebulon Carlander. Hello, my name is Zebulon, and I work with defense and security policy in Sweden. My question is... You describe in your book the US and EU as two separate empires when it comes to technology and other issues. But don't you think it is possible to find common agreements between the US and EU on critical issues and create a united front against China?
1: Absolutely, I think that on lots of issues there will be opportunities for for Europeans and Americans to to work together. I'm a, a dyed in the wall Atlanticist, and uh, very much believe that when it comes to some of the big questions, I write about in the books about how we deal with with data, with technology, with trade. Um, that there is a huge amount of opportunity for, for Europeans and Americans to to work together. But at the same time, I think what we're seeing in a lot of those different areas are ways that um, different powers are manipulating connectivity in order to, to force other countries to do things they wouldn't necessarily do otherwise. So the US uh, under... Uh, President Trump, for example, used the fact that there is such a close economic relationship between Europeans and Americans to to force uh, Europeans to give up on on their policies towards Iran by making sanctions uh, which the U.S. had adopted on Iran extraterritorial. Um, So big companies like Total and Airbus that had signed deals with Iran after the joint the JCPOA, which was the Iran nuclear deal, was was signed by the US and by Europeans. That was sort of fundamentally undermined by by US sanctions. The same happened with, with Nord Stream, where the US Congress introduced sanctions to try and get the German government um and german companies to to walk away from from a deal to to build a pipeline with with russia and the other way around has also been true europeans have used uh their com- anti-competition policy to stop you know big american companies from from merging like GE and honeywell they forced uh, microsoft to unbundle some of its uh, its products they've um introduce huge uh, fines on on apple um and introduced uh the gdpr rules on on, on privacy um without consulting with americans or, or any other players and increasingly you know there's talk about these sorts of tensions you know developing in, into other areas europeans have got their distinct ideas about climate change and how to tackle that and there are attempts now to to introduce uh carbon border adjustment mechanism which would make um people around the world have to pay uh, tax on the on the carbon emissions um if uh, the price of carbon is cheaper in those other places than than it is in in europe um so i think you know there are lots of ways of, of working together but at the same time in the book i sort of look at how europeans americans chinese these three big empires of connectivity look at at globalization and at connectivity through slightly different prisms. And increasingly, they are trying to impose their preferences on on other people. Um, Often, there's a total coincidence of what Europeans and Americans are trying to do in the world, but sometimes uh, there isn't. And the fact that we're so closely bound up in each other's affairs opens the, the way for these sorts of pressures to be put on each other Um, which have have not always been well-received in Washington or in European capitals.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. I think if we can stay with China a bit longer, we have another question here from Timi Okoya.
2: Hi, my name is Timi Okoya, a PhD student at the University of Lisbon in electrical and computer engineering, working on AI and robotics. I am a Nigerian who has lived in Europe for over four years, with a special affinity for foreign policy and diplomacy. My question. The official EU statement from the EU-China summit in 2020 was headlined defending EU interests and values in a complex and vital partnership. This suggests partnership was still on the cards, despite the US totally discarding it from the foreign policy. Do you think the EU can be tough on China and still partner with China like they did in science and technology with Horizon 2020?
1: I think the EU's relationship with China is getting more and more complex. If you go back five or six years, there was a a rather unseemly competition between different European capitals to be Beijing's best friend uh, in the hope that they could unleash huge amounts of chinese investment in their economies and get the chinese to build a lot of the infrastructure which uh, needed upgrading in different european countries i think through covid in particular but not just because of covid there's been a a, a bit of a geopolitical awakening uh, about china many people were shocked at chinese wolf warrior diplomacy at the way that the chinese government was willing to to use Uh, the absence of masks and protective equipment in different countries as a tool of of leverage and to allow them to put pressure on countries that were doing things that the Chinese government didn't like politically. But also, we've seen how China has used its uh, closed and huge protected market to conquer entire areas of of economic activity. Uh, You go back Again, five or six years, Europeans were leading the world in in solar panel technology. Now there are very few European companies that are in pole position. Uh, And China has taken over that entire market by benefiting partly from having this huge domestic market, which it could use to to achieve economies of scale, but also by acquiring uh, intellectual property from, from other players, by closing its market to others. And uh, and by subsidizing uh, its state-owned enterprises and, and helping them uh, to compete um, in a sometimes unfair way against uh, European companies in, in different markets. So I think that's why you had this sort of shift from simply seeing China as a partner to this complicated um, formula of seeing China as a partner, as a competitor and as a strategic rival. And that is the the tightrope which Europeans are are trying to walk. The Chinese obviously don't very much like being treated as a a strategic rival and as a competitor as well as a partner. And that's one of the reasons why you've seen these assertive attempts to to try and stop Europeans from uh, from managing them in, in this way. I think that if EU member states individually try to be tough on China as well as as partnering with it, they could find themselves being bullied and open to all sorts of types of pressure. But collectively, you know, the European Union is is China's biggest market um, in the world. It is a source of of vital technology and capital and expertise for the Chinese. And um, there's no reason why in lots of different areas we can't talk to the Chinese as, as a sort of equal player if we do it collectively. And that is... I think the direction within which europeans are trying to go um and it's a, it's a difficult balance uh but it's quite clear that if we don't work with the chinese it's going to be impossible to solve many of the problems that we face like the climate emergency but that the naive unconditional ways that we've engaged in which been engaging with china in recent years have not served us very well and or had very much of an impact on chinese foreign policy so um, that is the, the challenge and is one which I think Europeans are slowly uh, rising to after um, undermining a lot of their own bargaining power through the competition between different capitals. Wonderful.
0: So moving slightly away from China, uh, but still remaining relevant, we have two questions which I wanted to um, more or less combine into one since they're related to each other. The first will be from Teresa Gouveia, one of our board members. And the second from Jonas perlo Plesner.
3: Hello, Mark. My name is Teresa Gouveia. I'm a former former minister from Portugal and an ECFR council member. I want to congratulate you for your recent book. It gives us a lot to think about. And speaking of one of the themes that you addressed, the weaponization of globalization, I was thinking particularly of the Nord Stream 2 project and Europe has put itself in the dependency of Russia, one of its main political challenges. I was listening to the Russian ambassador in Brussels reading about it. He was saying that Gazprom will follow instructions from Putin. It can't be more clear. So, in your book, in the chapter about disarming connectivity, you propose several steps, establishing healthy borders and being realistic on what you can control among others. So my question is, do you think it's still realistic for Europe to pursue a strategic energy autonomy? This is my question. Thank you.
1: Hi,
2: my name is Jonas perola pesner I'm the Executive Director at the Alliance of Democracy Foundation. My question for today's show is, how do we lessen vulnerability created by connectivity with authoritarian regimes? Do we decouple economically, or are there any other smarter responses? looking forward to your answer
1: so i think this goes to the heart of of where what the book is trying to do which is to get us to think about interdependence in a more sophisticated way when i um was learning about international relations i found the idea that building links between different countries um would create greater harmony and peace because you create a class of people with an interest in that relationship, you make it more expensive to have conflict with one another. I found that a a very compelling idea and it's certainly one which lies at the heart of the European project where by building these links between countries, we've managed to turn enemies into friends. But where I think we were naive and I was certainly uh, um, uh, guilty of that was to assume that interdependence per se would uh, create harmony, whereas in fact, the nature of of the relationship matters quite a lot, whether it's a balanced relationship where both sides have an equal uh, amount to gain and to lose from working together, or if it's a one-sided relationship, which therefore allows one country to to bully or blackmail other countries. there's a term which uh, they use in international relations of asymmetric interdependence and that often actually encourages people to uh, to to behave in quite competitive and aggressive ways towards one another and the trick i think is not to 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 move towards autonomy nobody i think uh, really wants us to become North Korea and, and not to have the benefits of globalization, of global supply chains, all of the, the cultural resources, the, the know-how, and all the things which make our lives kind of fun and interesting, which we get from other parts of the world. We don't want to lose any of those things. But at the same time, we don't want to put ourselves in a position where we can be bullied and blackmailed and where the ties that bind us to others become uh, above all a currency of power. So that means structuring the relationships in a very careful way so that they're balanced. I think when it comes to our energy relationship with Russia, we've come a, a hell of a long way in the last 10 years. When ECFR first started, one of our first reports was called Beyond Dependence, and it was about the economic about the energy relationship we have with Russia. And a lot of people then were worried about the the German relationship with Russia because Germany is was Russia was you know was buying huge amounts of of Russian gas, and they thought that that meant that Germany wouldn't be able to have a, a kind of independent policy towards Russia. Gerhard Schröder, um, when he was Chancellor of Germany, used to be very influenced by the sort of traditional SPD approach of Ostpolitik and of trying to to build a a closer relationship um, uh, between the two countries through uh, expanding this kind of interdependence rather than uh, being kind of critical of it. And people thought that this was partly because of, of Germany's energy dependence on Russia. But actually, that was always a false reading of Germany and German policy because Though Germany is a huge client for, for Russia for gas, it, gas, Russian gas only makes up quite a small percentage of Germany's overall energy mix. And Germany's energy mix is quite diversified. So there was, it was never in a situation where it would be very cheap for Russia to cut off German energy um, and expensive for Germany to have that energy cut off. In fact, it was always more dangerous for Russia to cut Germany off than the other way around, which is why it's never happened. And in a way, the German gas relationship, I think, is quite a good model for other countries as they develop relationships with Russia. There were back in you know, in the day when ECFR was launched, there were 14 member states that had a very different sort of energy relationship with Russia. They were mainly countries such as the Baltic states and Slovakia and Bulgaria where. They consumed, you know, up to hundred percent of of, um, of Russian gas in their energy mix, and they were very small markets, so it was quite cheap for Russia to cut them off. And they literally, the lights went off in some of these countries when the Ukraine gas crisis um, hit. What the EU did after that was to use a series of of, of different tools, mainly market. Uh, led ones to make sure that these very dependent countries were no longer energy islands but could buy energy from other member states it invest invested in in linking up electricity grids in making sure that you could have reverse flow down the, the down different pipelines and put all of these countries in a very different re, um, relationship to Russia, where they're still big consumers of, of Russian energy, but they can't be easily blackmailed in the way that they were beforehand. And I think that that is uh, exactly what we should be aiming for: is being able to to have access to the rest of the world, but instead of having you know just in time supply chains, where the only thing we look at is is the price and making things as, as cheap as possible we should make sure that we are um, reasonably uh, diversified in our relationships so that we can be resilient if people decide to cut things off. And if you do have to have very asymmetrical relationships, it's good to make sure that you build them so that you're the stronger party rather than the one who can be blackmailed.
0: I think that sounds like very good advice. Maybe we tackle the next question now from Robert Cooper. And I feel like I know what you will answer after listening to you in the last few answers, but Robert Cooper, one of our council members, asked, um, after 100 years of fighting communism, has the West itself become Marxist, believing that globalized free trade will bring a globalized political freedom?
1: I think Robert's absolutely right on that. It's a kind of strange paradox that across the the liberal uh, capitalist world, in the 1980s and, and 90s, as, as uh, the, after the Berlin Wall um, fell and people started thinking about international relations, we developed a, a, a sort of version of, of economic determinism, a sort of materialist creed that we could somehow build a global economic base through free trade and, uh, and trade deals, which would then... Um, create a common sense of destiny amongst different countries and that that would then eventually pave the way for a political superstructure which would allow us to deal with with political problems together and you know if you look at the decision to let China into the World Trade Organization at the beginning of this century a lot of the arguments made for it by Bill Clinton and others who were who were driving that forward was exactly this that by letting China join the the world trade organization and be part of the sort of capitalist free market club that um that we were creating that this would change the way that chinese thought about their interests they would become responsible stakeholders in our system and uh it would reduce conflict they would become more like us and a lot of the the tensions which people um feared uh would arise would 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 melt away into thin air and instead we i think have had quite a few nasty uh, surprises over the last couple of decades. And we found particularly that China has become richer, has become more developed, has become much more uh, part of our economic system. Um, But um, it has both not become uh, like us politically, it has uh, moved away from rather than embrace political freedom, but also the amount of competition and tension between China and America has grown with uh, with every year that has passed. And in a strange way, I think China and America got on much better with each other when they were very, very different from each other. And, and nowadays, they seem to be fighting much more over the things which they have in common, rather than the things which were different. And in the book, I, I spent quite a lot of time actually looking at at the evolution of the Sino-US relationship and show how, you know, if you go back to the time of Deng Xiaoping, for example, and and Jiang Zemin, you had this sort of uh, very symbiotic relationship, so symbiotic that people talked about Chimerica, you know, as a single economy. And, you know, you had the world's largest democracy, the world's biggest kind of autocratic system. You had the, the biggest uh, consumer in the world and the biggest producer of, of products. There was a, a sort of sense in which China and America were, were ying to each other's yang. Um, and they got on reasonably well. They were competing. There were tensions, but it was very manageable. Nowadays, where they look much more like each other economically, they're competing to become leaders in the same technological areas, whether it's AI or battery technology or quantum, um, they also ha- both have military bases around the world. They look much more like each other in many ways, and there's a huge amount more tension than there was back in the in in the 1990s.
0: Sounds like two siblings who are arguing now, as opposed to strangers. Let's move on a bit to the climate crisis now. Um, We have a question from Patrícia Sassna, who is another council
2: member of the ECFR. Hi, Mark. Um, Your age of unpeace is fascinating. Congratulations. I wanted to ask, though, how the climate crisis fits in your conflict by connectivity thesis.
1: And actually, how serious are you about climate change? Thanks. So... One of the big puzzles for liberal internationalists, such as myself, is why the climate crisis hasn't brought the world together and led up to uh, a, a really serious attempt to to create global solutions to to problems which are totally global. I mean, what could be more connected than the air that we breathe, the waters that we share in common, all of the global commons, um, and yet. Um, Over the years, we have really struggled to get countries to come together and uh, put their common interests in the survival of the species above national interests which different governments are serving. And, you know, that's the exact opposite of what we expected. There was this wonderful um, American science fiction series made during the Cold War where they kind of had a, a group of fictional scientists who were so scared of a nuclear holocaust that they wanted to find some way of getting Americans and and Soviets to to work together to focus on their common survival rather than on who was up and who was down in the superpower rivalry. And they decided to stage a fake alien invasion in order to bring about this um, path for humanity. And, you know, scientists don't need to do that today. We have the climate crisis, we have COVID, and we were told when I was a child, that these were kind of huge issues and that we were going to have to move from thinking about the national interest to having multilateral global solutions. We'd have to move from framing issues around emotions and politics and move towards scientific understanding. And we kind of empowered the IPCC, the UN, to to get the greatest science together to let us know what to do. And we're also told that increasingly... To make the right decisions, we would have to rely on international law um, and uh, which could be applied equally in the world rather than having uh, a situation where Mike might makes right and the most powerful countries would do what they want and everyone else uh, does what what uh, what they 're forced to do by the the more powerful countries and that was the philosophy which lay behind some of the big advances in climate diplomacy, such as the Kyoto Protocol, which came up with a, with a, a sort of global approach. It was in, inspired by what scientists were saying and had a series of legally binding targets for different countries. But every climate deal since then has actually moved away from those Those different uh, ideals. And when it came to to Paris, which was the last big breakthrough, it was wonderful that a deal was done, but it looked very different from the Kyoto Protocol, because it was, first of all, um, you know, the process of getting there was a really brutal one, where countries were very much focused on their national uh, interests, and they were trying to work out how to bail different countries out, rather than the kind of common planetary survival. Secondly, um, you know, in spite of all the warnings of scientists, most of the things they told us to do were ignored and things have got much worse rather than better. And even since Paris, they've continued getting uh, worse than they were before. But also the idea of having legally binding targets was just so uh, uncomfortable for many sovereignty minded countries that it was thrown out of the window. And it's now up to every country to set up their own uh, action plans. And then they get to mark their own homework uh, and um, and that's where we're at at the moment, um, and I think in many ways it's a sort of perfect illustration of of the thesis in my book about why connectivity brings out often the competitive instincts of countries and uh, leads them to to play games for for, for relative advantage rather than focusing on our common survival. So yeah, I care a, a huge amount about climate change, but for me, it's a sort of example of the tragedy of the connected world not living up to, to the hopes that we had during the the the, the kind of um, heady days uh, at the end of the Cold War, um, and a, a warning uh, about what could happen if we kind of carry on going down this route. Do We just have one question left.
0: I'm afraid we're going to have to stick with the, with the tragedy theme as the question we've saved for last comes from Antonio Notario.
2: My name is Antonio Notario. I am directly involved with strategic planning with regards to security. And uh, I remember your visit here, Mr. Leonard, in Madrid in 2014 when we had the opportunity to share some ideas which I took as full thought. I've just received your new book some days ago, and let me say that I'm really thrilled with your new approach on connectivity warfare, where economic sanctions, technology, or even illegal migration are used as weapons. However, in the age of do the foresee scenarios where a return to high-intensity conflicts will take place within the next 10 years where states will make full use of their state of the art military capabilities in a classic or fighting fashion
1: well i think that there's there's no question that there are a number of hot points which uh, could create uh, high intensity conflicts taiwan is the most uh, obvious one which people are, are very worried about there are lots of military exercises going on about it. military planners in in beijing um and in uh washington and in uh you know the indo-pacific command in hawaii i'm sure uh, are, are working overtime to think these different things through um and you know there are other flashpoints that we've seen over the last couple of decades uh, not just between China and America, but between other countries, particularly in 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 the Indo Pacific region. But uh, at the same time, I still don't think that that's the most likely way that humanity uh, could be brought to the the brink of of uh, to to kind of precipice uh, of. Uh, so, if you want to think about bleaker scenarios. I think that, that there are bigger dangers that you see conflicts which fall short of war taking on existential proportions. And, you know, one of the reasons why um, in my book I kind of argue that, that uh, connectivity has been turned into a weapon is because countries are so scared of the price of those sorts of high intensity conflicts. Because it would be very difficult to stop a, a war between China and America from going nuclear, the same with ones with, between other uh, great powers and that's why increasingly they're looking for for ways of of, of using sanctions of using cyber of uh, playing games around covid and and climate as ways of exercising power and, and influence each other uh, but any one of those uh, situations could equally have catastrophic consequences can in fact could end up killing as many people as the that as as a conventional war, um, and you know, already killing many more people than the small wars which are taking place at the moment, and I think that is something that we really need to think about and to prepare for because we're quite good at working out how to stop conventional wars from happening at building confidence, building measures at making sure that we count the number of weapons there are in different places and, and doing all sorts of war games to, to try and stop them and to, to think through how these dynamics could, could occur. But the idea of, of globalization itself being turned into a weapon and almost everything being sort of weaponized is something that we, we haven't really, uh, thought through properly we don't have any limits on uh, the types of uh, competition and conflict which is taking place in many of these domains we don't have any norms um which govern the behavior of, of different powers and um It's much harder to spot them and to control them because literally everything um, could could be uh, turned into a weapon. So it's not like, um, you know, nuclear warheads or ballistic missiles, uh, which you can um, count and, and put under surveillance. Have you watched the new James Bond movie, Mark? I, um, so far, have contracted that out to my children who have watched it and enjoyed it a lot, but I haven't yet had a chance to see it. Have you? I haven't, and
0: we don't necessarily have a bookshelf section in this episode, but it really reminds me of the newest James Bond film in which one of the characters laments that you used to be able to look the enemy in the face, and now they're everywhere, and it's much harder to deal with, and we're not prepared, so either you've advised them
1: or... So you think I'm guilty of the same sort of nostalgic um uh attachment to the Cold War as um No,
0: no, I don't I don't think you have the nostalgia element. I think in the movie they definitely they definitely added
1: that in there. Spoiler alert Though he died, uh, doesn't he?
0: Are you allowed to give that away? We may have to cut that out of this episode. Your listeners would not be happy. Our editor is saying no spoilers. (laughs) Well, in any case, Mark, thank you very much for tackling all of these wide-ranging questions which came in from um, all around Europe. And thank you to the listeners who have submitted them. They're really uh, wonderful and interesting to listen to. And if you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do let others uh, know by writing about it on your social media page or ours. But above all, please give us a good rating and review on whichever platform you use to download this podcast episode. But for now, from Mark Leonard and myself, Anna Ramic, that is goodbye. The editor of this week's podcast is Marlene Riedel in our Berlin office.